0: Chapter 7 of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Teresa. Chapter 7 We talked long that night before we finally went to bed. Why is it, Tim argued, that men without faith are most likely to be superstitious? They don't believe in God, but they believe in the most shameless scamps of fortune tellers. They pay no attention to the Bible, but they hire people to read the lines in their hands or the bumps on their head. They haven't room in their lives for an angel, but have room to fill their lives with ghosts and goblins. They don't believe in the Last Supper, but they are desperately afraid of having thirteen people seated at table." Beth had her head against his shoulder, relaxed safely after the nervous tension of the evening. "'I suppose,' I said, "'it's because men are so incurably religious.' that they have to believe in something. So if they don't believe in what's true, they believe the more violently in what's false. But don't you believe in ghosts? Beth asked sleepily. I do. Frankly, I don't know, I answered. I shall not be surprised if I ever do meet a ghost. If, for example, the scarlet archer turns out to be the real thing. But I shall certainly not be surprised if I go through life without any personal visitations from ghosts or fairies. Bess smiled in the darkness. "'Do you suppose that one can have a ghost for an in-law?' she asked. It was the first time I'd been sure that in the swift light of a holiday Tim had asked her and she had said yes. Funny how in the preoccupation with crime and mystery Tim had forgotten to tell me about the new element of joy in his life. Perhaps he thought that all the world could see it. "'I don't expect you to adopt my uncle,' Tim almost apologized, "'and the ghost goes with the house.' which isn't going to be ours anyhow. So, honey, you're safe enough in marrying an Urkenwald. You'll get only the prosaic, very material me. Then why should I want a ghost? She asked happily. We were sitting at breakfast, the three of us, when Tim's uncle, piloted by the repellent valet, was wheeled into the room. I shan't try to duplicate that scene. It was the scene of the day before, raised to fury, to a pitch that was close to hysteria. No doubt of it. The flight of arrows had played upon his nerves, as the pick of a guitar might in the hands of a madman play upon a tautly strung instrument. "'But it's you he's after,' he cried in all insincerity. "'The archer, if there is an archer, isn't warning an older Urkinwold of death. He never does. It's the young he loves, the young he comes to shoot. Just bad aim, just poor shooting. That's what made the arrows graze me.' With interest I noticed the tear in the shoulder of his dressing gown, Had the arrow entered there last evening and torn the cloth when, in a writhe of terror, he pulled away? And if it is a murderer? Why, asked Tim, in all reasonableness, don't you send for the police? I say in all reasonableness because that seemed the logical and sensible thing to do. The valet leaned forward over Tim's uncle and spoke one of his rare sentences. Yes, why don't you? It seemed almost as if it was the uncle's soul that writhed, "'The police are fools,' he cried. "'I don't want them prying into my affairs.' "'Not,' he hastened to add, "'with suspicious alacrity, "'that I have any least thing to hide. "'Nothing whatsoever. "'I merely hate the police "'for the stupid, interfering clods they are. "'But if he comes again— "'If once again—' "'He left the threat suspended in mid-air. "'Was it because he couldn't lay his tongue "'upon a fitting conclusion? "'Was it because he thought it would sound more sinister "'if he did not finish his threat? "'Wheel me back.' He ordered his valet, and it disappeared down the passageway as the door swung to behind them. Again, our threesome started off in the little car. We took golf clubs along as a cover, and we headed ostensibly for the links. Then we cut back and ran along the seawall road until we were near our cove. We had spotted a clump of trees located half a mile from the cove, and back of a curve in the road, where we could hide the car from anyone who might be on the shore below. We stowed the car there walked back in leisurely fashion, glad enough of our golf clothes and shoes, and reconnoitred the now-empty cove and the cliff still rough by the feet of the seamen, Tim and me. Lead on, cried Beth cheerfully. I was once a Girl Scout leader. Hills and cliffs are like an easy flight of stairs to me. So indeed it proved. While the two of us men did more than our share of slipping and sliding on the still-slick mud, Beth came down after us with a firmness of foot that was as reassuring as it was graceful. We reached the shore of the little cove, and took a minute out for the return of our normal breathing. Then Tim assumed the lead. "'As I recall,' he said, pointing, "'the mouth of the old cave was about there. At least it was there a long time ago.' It was easy to see that he was stumped. He regarded the cliff as might a stranger. He couldn't have been more puzzled in his search for landmarks if we two had exchanged places, and I had been the searcher of these childhood haunts.' "'Queer,' he said. "'I remember there was something like a gash in the side of a cliff, "'and now the whole thing is covered with shrub "'and would look like solid rock.' "'Did you ever hear of camouflage?' I asked carelessly. "'It was an idea, anyhow, whatever it might be worth. "'Do you think that's possible?' he demanded. "'As if he felt I had really hit on it, "'he walked back to the edge of the water, "'got his bearings with a quick survey of the path "'we had just descended, "'and headed straight for a solid-looking rock.' over which willows bent and on which fines had a healthy grip. "'I'd swear it used to be just about here,' he said. "'Well,' Beth volunteered, "'if open sesame still has its power—' "'Open sesame!' she commanded, shutting her eyes. "'This is it,' Tim cried, as if the magic words had really done their lock-picking trick. We ran forward to the spot where he was digging furiously behind a huge rock. "'Take it easy,' I warned.' It is camouflage. Don't spoil it. It would never do to let the would-be artists who constructed it realize that their work had been tampered with. Indeed, it was a beautiful job. In masterly fashion rocks had been built up over the mouth, and there had been added a bit of cement and such dirt as created the impression of permanence and age. On closer inspection, however, you could see that the willows had been transplanted, and the vines and shrubbery would no doubt die, with the winter, never to be revived." Careful, I said again, not to let light pour into the cave. If there are people in it, and they see that sudden flash of light, we're sure to have trouble. We worked at the main rock carefully, disturbing it as little as possible, until there was just room enough for us to slip in, one at a time. The thin opening permitted almost no illumination of the cave. We caught the damp, musty, unaired scent that is characteristic of natural caves, and I had to lean over to Beth reassuringly with a— "'Don't worry. Probably no bats,' before I felt her release, her tense grip on herself. "'Quiet,' said Tim, and we stood motionless. "'That wide opening in the big mouth in which we stood should, we thought, provide a kind of telephone receiver for sounds coming from further back in the cave. "'We listened, letting ourselves grow accustomed to the darkness and the intense quiet. "'Not a sound rewarded our attention. "'No use staying unless we use our flashes.' I said at length in a whisper, "'You know this section from your kid days, Tim. Flash around and see what you can find.' We crouched back against the far wall, and Tim flashed the light on the walls around him. They were rough, stone and dirt walls, the kind that might once on a time have been the mouth of an underground river flowing into the sea. The light thrust its prying finger up into the ceiling, which rose some twenty or more feet over our heads. It was of the same stone and dirt, no sign of slagmite or type just the rough carvings of an ancient river that had long since done its work and retired to its old folks' home in the sea. Why in the world would anyone want to protect the mouth of, so unprepossessing, a place with that careful piece of camouflage? You and Beth take the north wall. I'll take the south. Search carefully. Report in a low voice as soon as you find anything. But don't move until we've turned the lights on the floor as a guide. Our flashes together hit the dirt and stone floor under our feet. It was trampled down, but now closely packed as if by heavy boots, and a fair number of them. The heel marks of freshly stamped rubber were obviously of very recent origin. We parted and ran our lights feelingly over the wall and into every minor cavalette and nook. Not a sign of anything. No catch of weapons or dope or rum or smuggled goods. No hidden machinery. No oil that, it was a thought, might be used for the refueling of submarines. No food chest or cask of liquor. Suddenly Tim cried out softly, Three pieces of candle thrown off here into a corner, he reported. Pick them up. We'll light them and save the torches. Our first investigation finished. We met in the center of the vestibule. How far back did you ever go, Tim? I asked. You and your adventurous young friends. There's an exit in that far wall, Tim replied. But what's beyond that, I don't know. In fact, I don't know whether anyone has ever been back there. I went to the rock he had indicated. Our friends have, I whispered, for on the side of the rock were the scrapings of mud, evidently off shoes, the sort of thing that would automatically be left behind when a man went through a narrow passageway. I slipped through and reached out a hand to Tim and Beth. They followed, squeezing their bodies through the narrow opening in the rock and back into the narrow total darkness. Again we listened with breathless intentness. A far-off rumbling, rushing sound came to our ears. Beth gripped Tim's arm in mine. Underground River, Tim reported with assurance. We used to listen for those sounds when we were kids. But still no sound of human inhabitants or workmen, friends, or enemies. I handed Beth a candle and a packet of matches. You've a job, my dear, I said. Light that and at regular intervals, say every five paces, drop a bit of the melted wax on the ground. If I've read correctly these caves are likely to have a thousand twists and turns, and blind alleys and diverging corridors. It might be nice to find our way out after we've done exploring. We pushed on slowly. The ugly dirt and stone vestibule had given place to the beginning of a charming cave development. Our flashes picked out the sheen of columns, the beginning of great rock formations that hung above and rose dangerously below us. We marked for remembrance the ones that seemed highly individualized. We pushed on, saving our flashes as much as we could, and working ahead in the faulty light of the candles. How easily we human beings grow accustomed to new environments! For a hundred feet or more we fairly crawled along, holding on to one another for the dear security of close association. Then we began to grow almost careless. We pushed ahead with increasing speed. The darkness, which did not yield up the dangers we had expected, became almost our native element. We swung great shadows round us with the twist of a candle, and we saw them come and go with narrow flicker of our nerves. And all the time the far-away roar of the underground river grew clearer, but there was a complete absence of all human sound. Then we came to another small opening. I crushed myself through into the darkness, and pulled Tim through after me, and just as I was taking from Beth's hand the lighted candle, panic caught at my throat. Before I was conscious of any volition on my part, I had blown out her candle, and we both pulled the girl through into the pitch darkness." no orders were needed to hold us all absolutely silent listening with all the intensity of tuned harps waiting for a hand to sweep across them the hand swept faintly but in a way that set our concert pitch nerves vibrating in what was not quite terror yet far more than anticipation ahead of us was the unmistakable sound of echoes human voices a command of some sort and then the sound of tapping sharp staccato not in any measured rhythm but in the business-like blow of a hammer in contact with iron or stone. We stood listening, trying to make head or tail of the noise, frustrated by the realization that if we lit a light now we would surely be seen by whoever was working far down the stone corridors. What was going on? Where was it going on? What did it mean? But the enveloping darkness was our only answer. We dared not go forward. We were loath to go back. Yet back we went. After all, within the cave, day and night seemed exactly the same. If these were men at work, they might rest during the night, and if we returned then, we might find out what was happening, what was the meaning of this mysterious tapping, this careful development in the underground bed of an ancient river. So back we crawled through the hole and out to the mouth of the cave, replacing the camouflaging as perfectly as we could. The rush of light about us, the smell of the sea and the fresh air, the sense of vastness after the close compression of the cave, made us want to sing a little and laugh at nothing. "'Yet these impulses were driven back by the uncertainty about what might be going on in that cave. Was it all wild goose chase? Were we building mystery and horror out of an innocent ship and its casual crew?' We sat there for a while, knowing that something was going on in there that needed our attention, that demanded investigation, that. The little town was in an unexpected flurry of excitement. Even the railroad station was open— Half a dozen officers, we heard, had arrived, and were on their way to the new coastal defenses. The hostess in the tea-shop was quite ecstatic. She had lived through World War I, and remembered, but not without considerable prompting, the Spanish-American War, and now once more officers had been dumped into her life. "'And charming young men,' she said, clearly college-bred. Beth pinched the arms of her cavaliers. You should never get out of uniform, she whispered. Think how you'd have prostrated this nice thing with your whipcord. Tim clearly didn't want to prostrate anyone but Beth. I wasn't interested in prostrating anybody anyhow, but on the chance that some of our friends might be among the new arrivals, we headed for the fort. A sentry held us up when we tried to enter. We had no identification with us— So we looked wistfully through the barbed wire and high voltage fence along which, in the course of time, power would protectingly flow. We had a sense of vast structural activities beyond. Flat cars on which mysterious monsters lay swatched in heavy canvas told us that the big guns had begun to arrive. One huge building in the center was clearly the future ammunition dump. No doubt of it, we were getting ready, and rapidly ready. To present any invading enemy with a reception he would not forget in a hurry nor regard with any degree of enthusiasm backly swung the car into town it was getting on toward dusk and tim drove slowly thoughtfully how about a cold drink he suggested suiting his action to his own suggestion by swinging up toward the wooden sidewalk before the greeks fine i replied as i was about to follow out of the greeks wiping his mouth with the back of his hand walked a fellow in the nondescript clothes of a farmer or mechanic. He took a swift look at us, then, as if he recognized the car, or us, he put his hand over his face to hide an artificial cough, and turned away down the street. "'That's the fellow!' I almost gasped. "'No doubt of it. It was the sailor who had been tinkering with the useless engine on the deck of the ship. It was the fellow whom we had treated to the end of a wrench when we went through the ship. So he had not gone with the rest when the ship departed.' Beth picked out the essential element we had missed. Look, she said, pointing after him, his boots are heavily caked with mud. It was the same dark, thick, gummy mud with which our shoes had been covered when we emerged from the cave. I think I see it, said Tim. I honestly believe I see that part of the puzzle. At least that. We had both seen it. Only Beth, who knew few of the details of our private adventures, had to be brought up to date. But Tim was talking on. Suppose that cave doesn't end abruptly but runs on and on. Suppose it cuts under the river that flows through the town. Suppose it travels as far as the coastal defense fortress. Suppose that right under the munitions dump, the building erected to hold shells enough to drive back a fleet, ammunition enough to riddle an invading armada of planes, high explosives were installed. With wire stretching back to the point of electrical contact, I supplemented. We all sat silent. That would be horrible, Beth said at last, with a shudder we both felt, and I think Beth and I could feel Tim set his shoulders in a determination that both of us knew to be deep and unshakable. How perfectly, I was thinking aloud, that cave might be laid out for sapping, a tunnel all undercut, ready and waiting for the installation of high explosive and contact fuse, just a simple job of stringing wire, dumping TNT, and when the right moment came... The drum of foam wire that had seemed without purpose now became full of meaning. Tim stepped on the accelerator. Let's go, he cried. But just as he swung into low, the sheriff down the street rushed out of his little office, looked up and down the street, and waved wildly at us. What's that mean? I asked, expressing the question in all of us. Tim swung the car toward the waving sheriff, who stood breathless and red with some badly bottled emotion. You, he cried. You, the two of you that clearly meant us men. Quick, come inside. It was three of us, not two, who responded, following the sheriff into his office. Two men in topcoats turned from the window as we entered, looking at us with that abnormal quiet that seems to characterize really good detectives. There are the two, I mean the three, who found the body, the sheriff panted, And these, he indicated the two men almost proudly, are FBI. All OF A SUDDEN I HAD A SENSE OF PERIL FOR OURSELVES, AS WELL AS FOR THE MYSTERIOUS OBJECT OF THE ARCHER'S ARROWS, THE sapper's DYNAMITE. FOR IF THEY HAD DISCOVERED THE WOUND IN THE DEAD MAN'S SIDE, IF THEY KNEW THAT THE CASE INVOLVED MURDER, WE, IN OUR CAPACITY OF amateur sluice, MIGHT BE HELD FOR SUPPRESSING EVIDENCE. I SAW THAT TIM HAD THE SAME INTUITION. AN OLD, OLD SUSPICION THAT THE DEAD MAN WAS NO TRAMP CAME BACK WITH A RUSH. I TOOK OVER AND TOLD THE OPERATORS ALL THE DETAILS OF THE DEATH. All except my suspicion that that was the man who had visited Tim's uncle, and that Tim had found an arrow barb in the dead man's heart. I'd wait, I argued with myself, until they asked us about the wound. Thanks, said the taller in order of the operatives. Now we'll go see the body. Are you through with us? I asked. Come along, he said sharply, and I knew that this time we were going to be witnesses of no casual examination. The sheriff led us down the street, talking a steady flow, mostly about the new morgue and how well it kept bodies that were placed there. The FBI men said exactly nothing, as far as I can recall, just plodded along with their slouch hats pulled far forward and an air of being remote from any world of dead men and sheriffs and material witnesses. I haven't been here since we laid him out, apologized the sheriff. Mostly I leave that sort of thing to the coroner, Dr. Sweet. But well, you will want to look him over yourself, I'm sure, and so—' He swung open the door and flashed on the light. We were looking into a small room, white-tiled, air-conditioned, and clean as the top of a big executive's desk. "'Now right over there on the slab,' said the sheriff, and stopped. The slab, toward which he had instinctively pointed, was as bare as the hand that gestured. If ever the dead tramp had rested there, he rested there no longer.' The FBI operatives looked not in the least surprised. Instead, they looked straight at Tim and myself. "'That was, as I'm sure you can see,' said the top man of the two. "'No tramp. But he double-crossed, I guess, once too often. He used to be of the Gestapo. Then, in a fit of repentance, he was still pigeon for the FBI. Of course it was murder. And now the corpus delicti is gone. You gentlemen would, I think, be doing your country a favor.' if you told us anything, that, because, for example, you thought it irrelevant, you didn't tell us before. Yes, said Tim. He was murdered. Neither of the men showed any more surprise than if he had commented on the weather. How? the leader asked. With an arrow, said Tim. Haven't you a lot more than that to tell us? the FBI man asked quietly. We saw that we better tell all we knew all that is, except the fact that we somehow felt the uncle's connection with what was happening. So we skipped, as not proved, the man's visit to the house. We told the rest and waited to see exactly what would happen to us. "'Very foolish, young men,' said one of the FBI men quietly, "'especially for Army officers. No time to be playing correspondence school detectives these days.' "'But,' he smiled, "'I still believe that perhaps you've some plan in mind in which we might all collaborate.' I had. I knew that Tim would fall in instantly, and, feeling utterly relieved at this chance to redeem ourselves, I offered it to the listening operatives. Good, was all they said, and we shook hands. The car cut around the sea-wall slowly. We were all deep in our thoughts, and the preludes to the plan that we had sketched out with the operatives. Said Bath, at long last, after we had passed the cove and were nearing our favorite clump of trees on the little promontory, if ever our guardian angels had a job to do, it's during these next few hours. We parked, as usual, turned off the ignition, and sat thinking. Then Beth's guardian angel did get on the job. "'Come on,' she cried, pointing to the field of late Goldenrod behind the cliff. "'I'm getting an armful for that living room of ours. "'If we must have mystery and murder, let's have it in an atmosphere of cheerful living. "'And since none of us has hay fever—' She pushed him from behind the wheel and climbed out of the car. I followed, opened the pocket-knife I always carry, and in a few minutes we were cutting the long golden flowers into generous bunches. Until... That roar that sounded seemed low and hidden, as if it was packed with some sort of noise-duddener. But it was unnatural enough, and close enough to make us wheel about. Indeed, the very earth under our feet rocked. Just a slight rock, but menacing, frightening, as if shuddering from a nearby explosion. Even as we watched, the little promontory staggered, our car slithered dizzily and drunkenly. The clump of trees sagged away from us with a final lurch, and trees, earth, car, and all disappeared, almost as if in slow motion, to fall with an unseen splash into the sea below. Tim leaped forward, but I grabbed him, and holding Beth's hand with my free hand, we dashed away from the scene. What happened? Beth managed to demand the brokenly. They know we come this way. They've watched us park there to talk they mined the promontory. And when they heard the rumble of our wheels above them, and knew that we had come to a pause, they let off the explosive. If, they probably argued, we happened to be in the car, we'd all drown in the deep water at the base of the cliff. If we were not in the car, at least we'd be too frightened to come back that way again. For we were supposed to believe that the road had been washed out by the storm. We were not meant to guess that the promontory fell by the work of man." And if we hadn't known the rest of the plans, we never should have guessed. Right, let's keep running for it! I cried. We ran, but for all her breathlessness, heard best say in what was an unusual but none the less heartfelt prayer, "Dear good guardian angel, thanks so much for being on the job." End of chapter seven. Recording by Maria Trees.